Genesis 44. Then he commanded the steward, saying, Fill the man's sack with food as much as they can, and put the man's money in the mouth of his sack. Now, the he in verse 1, that's Zavinath Paniah, the vice regent of Egypt, the number two to Pharaoh himself only, the man who was behind that master pan, that master plan to collect one-fifth or 20% of all the grain that's produced by the people in Egypt during the seven years of plenty, and to store that grain in the city spread out, the thro- spread out throughout Egypt. A man who is behind the plan to then sell back, not give back, but to sell back that grain, not only to the people of Egypt, but to all the people of the neighboring countries. This is also the same man who had, for whatever reason, shown special attention to that Hebrew family, the family of Jacob, when they showed up in Egypt to buy grain, who had accused them of spying with no proof or even reason to do so. A man who had held one of their brothers in prison until they came back with the youngest brother. The same man who had commanded that the money that they spent on that first load of grain that they had bought be put back into their sacks when they left. This is the man that the sons of Jacob were dealing with. And they had just come back to Egypt a second time to to buy more grain. And when they showed up in Egypt, they had been directed away from the marketplace and to this man's home, which is where they had dined the previous night, after having Simeon set free from jail and reunited with them. The sons of Israel, they weren't sure what to think of this man. He had been gracious to them the last night. They had had a pretty good time at his house. But there were things about this man that made these men feel pretty uneasy. Because they were, true, they were followers of the true and living God. They didn't believe in divination, in incantations or the like. They knew that Yahweh was God and that he alone gave insight and did miracles. But this man, he made them pretty uneasy. It was like he knew them. Take, for instance, the fact that they were told purposefully where to sit at dinner last night and that they were sat in birth order. Strange. And come to think of it, the greeting made to Benjamin by him was strange as well. Sure, it had been made through an interpreter, but there was warmth there that was odd. May God be gracious to you, my son? And, and the interpreter, when he had said that, he had used our term for God when he interpreted, interpreted that blessing. And come to think of it, when we had been first let out of prison, we were told through the interpreter, do this and live, for I fear God. And there, he used that word Elohim again. Weird. This was the man that the brothers were dealing with. And the man who told this slave in verses 2 and 3, now put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. 
As the morning light broke, the men were sent away with their donkeys. Now, the slaves that served this man, the vice region of Egypt, they were actually people, just in case you didn't understand that. They had brains and they had thoughts. And they knew that their master didn't deal with everyone in this manner. In fact, he dealt with no one in this manner. And they knew that he wasn't an Egyptian either. Whether or not they knew that he was a Hebrew like these men or not, we don't know. But they knew that he was a foreigner. And maybe this is why he did strange things like telling me to put their money back in their bags before and now he's given me the same command. Filled their bags with grain and returned their money for the grain in the sacks. But this time, I'm supposed to take his favorite coffee mug and put it in the sack that belongs to the man who he spoke really kind to last night. The man that he had given the most food to at dinner. My master's a good man, a wise man. But sometimes, I just can't figure him out. Verses 4 and 5. Now they had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his household steward, Arise, pursue them in. You shall overtake them and say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses to interpret omens? You have done evil in doing this. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. The slave of Zaphina Pinea, that slave was good at his job. He knew how to obey and he did exactly as he was commanded, when he was commanded, and even how he was commanded. He never flinched in the deceitful manner in which these men were being treated. Who was he to step into the matters of a man who was his master? He was sent, and so he went. And he faithfully delivered his master's message, just as it had been given to him. And saints, the goal in our lives should be to live in such a manner. So that on that great getting up day, which we will all face, our one desire in life, the goal of every decision that we make, every day of our life should be based around that moment. Because that moment is going to happen. You are going to die. And you never know when it's going to be. You young folks may be sitting there saying, Not me. I'm in the prime of my life. I'm healthy. I'm invincible. And yet, 11 out of every 1,000 of your generation will die this year. And even at your age, if you have been redeemed by Christ, your goal should be the same as the oldest of saints. That when you see your Savior face to face, that he will welcome you with open arms and say to you, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And that is a quote from the parable that Jesus told his disciples concerning the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 25, 23. And earlier in that gospel, Jesus 
And I want you to stop for a second. Again, this is Jesus that is saying this. This is the one that we are supposed to be living for. The one that you are supposed to be wanting to hear say to you, well done, good and faithful slave. Come, enter into your master's rest. That one. Earlier in Matthew, he warns those that are complacent in their service to their so-called master, to them, to us, to all that would call on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. He tells us, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are very few who find it. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. So which path are you on? Which path are you choosing? You do realize, don't you, that on a minute-by-minute basis, a day-by-day basis, you're choosing a path? Are you choosing the well-worn path path of comfort, personal ease? How about choosing that wide path of personal preference over the narrow path of obedience to the Lord? How often in your choosing, in your decisions, are you actually factoring in the commands of God in your decisions? How about when you're thinking about a job or a house or a car? or even school. How does the word factor into these decisions in your life? You you do realize that the word does reign over all those things, right? That the Lord is sovereign over those things as well, and that he does care about those things. Does taking a job and being away from church, being removed from your local body, does that even factor into the decision? Or how about the manner in which you make those decisions? Do you ever seek counsel from the elders? From other godly people in the body? Or are you just believing the mantras of this hell-bent society that tells you, you deserve a break today. You deserve to have it your way. This is your life. You're free to be you. The one who you claim has redeemed you with his life, he commands you, and this is not a suggestion. This is not a request. He commands you to obey him and enter through the narrow gate and then stay on the narrow path. And to those that are his, he followed up that command with a second, beginning in verse 15 in Matthew 7. There, he says, and he commanded us, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You do realize that there are people out there that clothe themselves in the garments of the king, who put on the body and the blood, who make a show of being in the family, and who are not. And of these, we are told to be aware of them. This isn't a command so much to be aware of the false prophets such as Joel Osteen. 
but they are included in this. This command is also to beware of those false prophets who are teaching lives through their lives, telling you, you don't have to obey. You don't have to serve King Jesus. And they do this through their willful and flagrant disobedience, as we're told, beginning in verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Saints, those that are sitting here, those that are hearing my voice, this should matter to you. What fruit are you producing? This is the meaning behind that fig tree that Jesus cursed in Matthew 11 because he wasn't producing fruit. It was not producing fruit. Because you have been planted by him to produce fruit in keeping with your sonship. What fruit are you producing? The fruit in keeping with your exalted position? That is not about works as much as it is about obedience to his word. Just the basics of Christianity, being in his word, having it be your food and your drink, being in constant communication with the Lord through intentional prayer, being an active and vibrant member of the body that you have covenanted with. This is obedience. This is working. And let's not forget working also. Working hard at whatever it is that the Lord has placed in front of you to do. And then trusting in the Lord for all the rest. And all this should matter because one day, maybe this day, you will stand face to face with your maker. And for this reason, we need to hear the warning of verses 21 through 23 of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you know what lawlessness is? It's disobedience. Do you want to see, do you desire to see what a good and faithful slave looks like? The slave of this man, the regent of Egypt, he was a good and faithful slave. He did exactly as his master commanded him, when his master commanded it, and exactly how he was commanded He was a good and faithful slave. And to the sons of Jacob, he was sent. And so he went. Verses 7 through 9. And they said to him, 
Why does the Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever your servant it is found, let him die, and we also will be the Lord's slaves. There's wisdom in keeping your mouth closed and not making promises, even when you're 100% sure of what you're being accused of isn't true. Proverbs 17, verses 27 and 28 tells us, He who holds back his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of discernment. Even an ignorant fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered understanding. But this is not what the sons of Israel have done. Verse 10, So he said, Now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, but the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried, each man brought his sack down to the ground, and each man opened his sack. So he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And with this moment, these men have fallen out of the frying pan of the therapy of God and into the fire. We are never told why why Joseph treated his brothers in this manner, why he spoke harshly to them, made them go back and bring Benjamin to him, why he gave their money back to them. But this question is important. It's something that we should think through. It's important to understand and then to apply into our lives. You see, there's plenty of people that would speculate that he did this because of how they had treated him. He's just getting his own pound of flesh in return. He was angry. He's vengeful. He's wounded. And he's lashing out because of his wounds. And to to those people, I would say, hogwash. If you're thinking this way, if you actually think this way, that Joseph is acting this way, if you're viewing the actions of Joseph in this manner, let me ask you this. What is it? What is it in the testimony of his life that demonstrate that this is even a possibility? If this was the case, if he was just a hurt, unforgiving, and vengeful man that's taking liberties with the power and the prestige that God has given to him, then how is it that when Joseph finally reveals his identity to his brothers in chapter 45, which he will do, how is it then that he could say to them this, so don't be angry or grieved with yourself because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There are still five years in which there is neither plowing or harvesting. So God sent me before you to establish for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive for a great remnant of survivors. So now, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has sent me as a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Those are verses 5 through 8 of Genesis 45. If he was vengeful, if he was just a hurt person, why wouldn't he have not just sent a group of soldiers north to capture and bring his brothers back to him as slaves? Or why wouldn't he just send them up and off them? He had the power. 
This is how vengeful, hurt men with limitless, limitless amounts of power, how they act. No, saints, we need to be sure of this fact. Joseph understood that he was no different than his slave. That man who has done his bidding with his brothers. He, Joseph, was a man under authority. And he was only doing that which the Lord had directed and desired for him to do. We're never told how he knew. But he was so confident that the actions that he was taking with his brothers, they, he was so confident in that, that they were from the Lord, that he was doing the Lord's work. He was just as confident about that as he was when he told Pharaoh how he was supposed to act when he interpreted those dreams. The saints, this isn't out of the ordinary either. This really shouldn't be so hard for us to grasp how this could possibly be because we all understand this kind of authority, at least to some degree. You youngsters, you kind of understand this authority a bit. How often have you gone to your parents and asked them to do things or to give you things, and they said no? And how often, when they deny your request, in the end, it works out right? It's like they seemingly know. And at the same time, though, the knowledge and the insight that were given to Joseph were given to him in order to lead and guide a nation and a people. And the first and most obvious people that he was leading and guiding are the people of Egypt. And this is where, though, we need to have a biblical worldview, a God-centered worldview. And this is important because the reality is, in their lives, is the same reality in our lives. All that happened in Egypt and think about all that actually happened in Egypt during this time. It was all from the hand of God, all for the glory of God, just as is everything that is happening in our lives. Everything. Illness, joblessness, happiness. Nothing can come our way. And saints, this is important for you to grasp, to truly understand if you're ever truly to have joy in your life. Nothing, nothing can come our way. Illness, disease, COVID, a bullet, or a bomb. Nothing can come our way. Nothing can touch us outside of the preordained will of God. Nothing. Saints, do you understand this in your life? You're supposed to have freedom in Christ from worry. Do you understand this in the lives of your family as well? Your responsibility, parent, is to be diligent in the obedience to your master, knowing that your master is a good and faithful master.
at the end of the day, you're to trust that He is God and you are not. And it was the same in the life of Joseph and his slaves. All that happened in Egypt, it all happened for the church. He's going to say that. He actually said that in Genesis 45. It's all for the church, the people of Israel. Joseph was placed in his position that he was given. He was given the authority that he had and even the insight and the wisdom. All of this was by the Lord for the betterment of the church. Nothing has changed, saints. Nothing. In the letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul told them this concerning the reason for all things. He said this, He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Those are verses 22 and 23. That's in the legacy standard. The Christian standard Bible translates those verses this way. He subjected everything under his feet and appointed him head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And the English Standard Version translates those verses in this manner. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is being said here is that the body of Christ, the universal body, and then the local bodies are the reason that all things happen. Anything happens in this realm. This is how important the church is to God. And this is also the reason behind all the events that are happening in Egypt as well. The seven years of plenty, while they happened in Egypt, even though the people there benefited from them, even though the Egyptian government would benefit and gain great wealth and control because of the leadership and stewardship of Joseph, all this happened for the church. The church was the primary concern and the intention of all this happening. And this is how important the church is to God. And to his church, he gives leaders. And if we ever truly desire to understand how and why Joseph acted in this section of Genesis, we must first redirect our attention to how God leaves that most precious of his entities, his church, His church first is supposed to be a church of order, a church that is under subjection as Christ was, a church that is empowered and given leaders. In Acts 20, chapter 20, we are told who empowers those leaders. There we read, pay careful attention to yourselves. Paul talking to the leaders and to the the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which, is, which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 28. Yes, a local body affirms elders, but they don't call elders. They're not empowering elders. They are merely affirming that which the Holy Spirit has already done. He made them overseers. And these men are to be an example to the body, as we're told in 1 Peter 5, 3-6. And they are, be, they are to be tested and to live 
to a standard set by God and is given to us in Titus 1, 6-9 and 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, which tells us, this is a trustworthy saying. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good, a good work. And men, I want you to hear this. Every one of you should aspire to these things. Whether or not you're called to be an elder, because these are the marks of a Christian. But an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man doesn't know how to lead his own household, how will he then take care of the church of God? Not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snares of the devil. And these men are meant to direct and to lead, which is what we're told in verses such as 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. There we read, But we ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. And again, Hebrews 13, 7, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you and considering the results of their conduct, imitate their faith. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your soul as those who would give an account, so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. The manner that Joseph has been treating his brother. The manner in which he's been leading them is a great example of how very often when you go to your pastor or your elder seeking counsel, that counsel that you get may be not what you're expecting and may very often be very painful to your flesh. They may recommend or even commend things to you that you may not agree with or may even seem irrelevant to the reason why you came. And this is why it's important that you have a good grasp of the word that is supposed to be your life because these men, that man, has been laboring over your soul. He's been laboring in prayer over the state of your eternal soul. And since he's under the authority, and in fact, he must be under the authority of the Lord, the counsel that he may give you may seem just a bit too personal for you. And the reason for that is because he's been caring for and laboring for your eternal soul, the well-being, your well-being with the Lord, not so much your physical comfort. It was this way in the lives of the brothers of Joseph as well. Verses 13 through 17. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Then Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and, they, and he was still there. So they fell to the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed interpret omens? So Judah said, 
What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out our iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose cup the possession has been found. But he said, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now, the manner in which Joseph was treating his brothers wasn't being done in seemingly an honest manner. They're being accused of being thieves and liars. And what they stole, that they had stolen grain and even the personal favorite cup of their master, of his master. And in these things, they were innocent. But they were guilty of a far much worse crime. And this is so often the case with every one of us. We, will, we can be, we may be accused of things that we may not have done, things that we didn't do, and yet the real, reality is we've done far worse than anything that we've ever been accused of. C.H. Spurgeon once said, If any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. That type of thinking is considered abuse in our day and age. But it's truth. You may be innocent in the thing that you're being slandered for, and yet how many other things, how many other much worse things have you ever done? No, they had not stole money or even the cup, but this wasn't the reason that they were being put into this situation. The reason that they were brought back God is doing this because he desired them to realize something. Not so much about themselves or even what they had done in the past. He was using all of this to reveal to them that which he had already done in them. You see, they had thought in those years past when they got rid of Joseph, they thought so little about their father that they actually gave no thought to how them hating their little brother Joseph and the actions that they took against him, how that would affect their dad. But the years that they had been labored under the pain of watching their father grieve over the loss of Joseph and the remorse over how they had treated him, this was the frying pan of the Lord, the therapy session that they had been living through, and the reality of what was just about to happen to Benjamin. This was the fire that was about to reveal the work that the Lord had been doing in their lives. Verses 18 through 20. Then Judah came near to them and said, O oh my Lord, may your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, don't be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to our Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. We need to get our heads right about this. Benjamin is not a little kid. He was alive when Joseph was sold as a slave. He more than likely is about 30 years of age, and he has a wife. And he's got a parcel of, of children back at home as well. But the brothers of Benjamin, of Joseph, they know that he's the, the favorite of their father, and they don't hold that against him. They've learned 
that lesson of, of being bitter towards another person because of something that you can't attain or have. They were jealous of Joseph because of the love that Israel had for him, and they hated him for it. Their hatred was alive and was thriving within them long before the dreams that were given him by the Lord. But those dreams and the telling of them, they were of the Lord given to Joseph to bring about the frying pan of Egypt and the life of Joseph and to bring about the fire of the lives of Potiphar's wife and the years spent serving in the prison. Those dreams were also given to Joseph to bring about the reality of the character of the brothers of Joseph and the evil that dwelt in them. And they had been living in this frying pan ever since. The pain that they saw in their dad's eyes was a constant reminder of the evil that was them. And Judah, along with the other ten brothers, all understood the situation that they were facing. They were free to leave. But Benjamin, he wouldn't be coming back with them. Ever. They would once again be returning home without a brother and breaking the heart of their father with the news that his son, his favorite son, was gone. The first time that they did that, 20 years ago, they didn't seem to care. But this time, however, the well-being of their brother and their father, this is foremost in their minds. So Judah continues, verses 21 through 29. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy can't leave his father. If he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, however, if your youngest brother does not come down, you will not see my face again. Thus it happened when we went up to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And your father said, our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we can't see the man's face if our youngest brother is not with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I've not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you'll bring my gray hair down to Sheol and evil. And now, for the first time leaving since leaving Canaan, Joseph is finally told what his father thought happened to him. He learns that his brothers had presented his blood-covered and torn coat to their father, and they'd allowed him to believe that lie that Joseph had been, killed, that had been killed and eaten by a wild animal. And then Judah finishes up recounting the events of their interactions with this man and how the events as they stood would affect their father back in Canaan. So now, when I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, and his life is bound up in the boy's life, so it will be that when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became a guarantee for, my, for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the sin before my father all my days. Verse 33. So now. 
Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a slave to my Lord, and let the boy go up to his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the boy is not with me, lest I should see the evil that would overtake my father? The plea of Judah has been called one of the most manliest, most straightforward speeches ever delivered by every, any man. For depth and sincerity, it stands unexcelled. The theologian Barnhouse called it the most moving address in all the word of God. And the thing that we need to understand, so what? In all reality, big deal. Why would it have mattered what that old man thought in Egypt to this Egyptian man? Why, why would he even care? Egyptians didn't care about Hebrews, even so much so that they wouldn't even eat with them. Why would this man care? Why should he care? And yet, to this man, Judah, this man, Judah, makes this impassioned plea, not for Benjamin, but for the well-being of his father. And he's not the only one that cares about his dad this way. Reuben, the oldest, has also demonstrated his love and care for his father when he offered to place his children as collateral in bringing Benjamin to Egypt. And Judah had a lot to lose. If this man, if this man, this, this regent of Egypt, if he took him up on his offer, he would lose a lot. Again, we must readjust our thinking here. Judah wasn't this young man. Do you remember Genesis chapter 38? This last section of Genesis, chapters 37 through 50, they focus in on the life of Joseph. Chapter 27 begins this section, and, chapter, and that chapter tells us of the favoritism of Israel towards Joseph, and the multicolored coat, and the hatred of the brothers, and the dreams from the Lord, and the treachery of his brothers in selling him to the Ishmaelites, and then lying to their father about his demise. And the chapter, that chapter 37 ended with Joseph being resold in this, to the slave market in Egypt to that man named Potiphar. That's where chapter 37 ended. And we would have thought that chapter 38 would have picked back up in Egypt, telling us of what the events were happening to Joseph there. Do you remember chapter 38, though? Chapter 38, it just seemingly is thrust between chapter 37 and 39, which chapter 39 just picks back up after 37. Chapter 38, the timeline isn't even right. The events that happen in chapter 38 aren't the same timeline as the events of chapter 37 and 39. And they have nothing to do with Joseph or even Jacob. Chapter 38 is all about Judah. You might want to grab your Bible and flip back, up, back over there with me. Because the events that are told of happening in that chapter, they may have been lost to us the first time that we read it. But now, seen in light of our chapter from today, that event, the events that happened in chapter 38, how the Lord has brought about the personal growth in Judah through his own personal pain and suffering. Chapter 38 begins with the life of Judah seeming like it didn't even skip a beat 
after getting rid of Joseph. We're told in verses 1 through 5 that he got himself a wife and then gave birth to three sons. He had kids. He had things going seemingly well. So well, in fact, that he found a wife for his first son, Ur, named Tamar. And Judah probably loved his sons. I mean, he was probably like most dads. He loved his sons. Maybe thought that they were fine young men. But the Lord said otherwise. We're told in verse 7, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So Yahweh put him to death. Again, real person, real things that have happened. Think about this. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So Yahweh put him to death. That's kind of random, sudden. So then Judah tells his second son, be the man, act the man, carry on the name of your older brother through Tamar. And that second son of Judah, he complied, he didn't obey, and that didn't end well for him either. Verse 10, but what he did was displeasing in the sight of Yahweh, so he put him to death also. And it was after that event that Judah decided, Tamar's got some bad juju. And so he puts her out to pasture under the pretense that his youngest son, Sheila, was still too young to marry. And he leaves her there. And in verse 12, we're told that after a considerable time, she was daughter, the wife of Judah died. Then Judah was comforted, and he went up to the sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Agilamite. And again, Judah must have loved his family. Most people actually do love their family. And he must have loved his children, loved watching his sons grow up, become men. And even if he knew that the boys weren't good men, he still must have loved them. And he must also have loved that wife, since there was a time that he grieved for her. But it was after the events of verse 12 that that Tamar incident happens, when Judah becomes the father of two more sons, through his new wife, the wife of his eldest son, and of his middle son, their former wife, Tamar, who he did not love, and who he would never have relations with ever again. And the events, as told to us at the end of chapter 38, they line up chronologically with Joseph standing before Pharaoh, before the seven years of plenty the loss of his sons, the loss of his wife, and then the shame brought on in how he had acted towards his daughter-in-law and how he acted with his daughter-in-law, who is now his wife. All those things are pretty new, all pretty fresh. His two young sons, Perez and Zerah, they were probably toddlers back in Canaan. And the birth of his twin sons, that ends chapter 38. And then chapter 39 just picks up 20 years earlier, down south in Egypt, with Joseph being sold to Potiphar. And it's this man, Judah, who is now standing in front of the vice regent of Egypt, pleading for the life of his youngest brother, his father's favorite, to be released. The same man who in chapter 37 suggested to his brothers that they not kill Joseph, but sell him to the Ishmaelite traders. 
he understood something now about not only his own suffering, but about the suffering that his father had been going through after the tragic loss of Joseph. He hadn't thought about how his actions, how his hatred and feeling towards his brothers, how they would affect or even did affect anyone else. They had been completely selfish. But now, now his actions, his affections, they're being stirred outside of him. He's willing to suffer himself. Whatever might come, just hopefully to spare his father pain and suffering. What was it that brought about this growth, this change of heart, the change of character in Judah? It was the therapy of the Lord. His spirit, alongside of his word, using that created instrument of time to refine that man, to bring to the surface the dross of the sin of his life that it might be removed, that it might be removed and he might be an instrument for the glory of God. Saints, it doesn't matter how old you are. If you've made just a few years, or if you've made a double handful of decades as some of us have, as long as you're still recycling O2 into CO2, you can learn. You can be conformed. But this is where learning from others' experiences is far less painful than having the experience of the fire and the furnace that they went through to learn. And this is the reason why we're given this section of Scripture, to reveal to us how God conforms those that are His into the image of His Son, which is the reason for all those things which is working together for our good to those that are called according to His purpose and love Him. We very often don't understand this kind of love, which is why we need this kind of love. In our generation, we would call this tough love. If a parent reluctantly spanks their child, correcting them for their bad behavior, that's called tough love. But in reality, what we are doing, or at least what we should be doing in spanking them or disciplining them, is for the same reason that God disciplines those that he loves. He just loves us, and he desires that we walk in the newness of life, that we walk in him. He knows that even after salvation... Even after salvation, we are still very sinful and very selfish. But saints, don't misunderstand God. This doesn't affect how he loves us or his love for us. The amazing love of God towards you, well, it's nothing short of than amazing. There was nothing good within you, nothing lovely or appealing that would have caused Jesus to desire to die for you. This is the truth as told to us in Romans 5.8 when we're told, but God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And his love does not change. We're told in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
You need to understand that when your life is the frying pan, God isn't hating on you. He's not angry with you. He's not even disappointed in you. He's training you. He's disciplining you for righteousness' sake. He loves you. And in his love, he's answering that first prayer of yours. He's conforming you more into the image of his son. And he's doing this because he knows what's best for you. Saints, think this through. Again, use that three-pound supercomputer that God has given you to reason. Before you think, my life is just hard, it's just painful, because God is angry, or God is mean, or, or God is just hateful. Before you write off the pain and the suffering in your life as, well, that's just life. It just happens. Please remember Isaiah 1. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That's verse 18. And this is the love of God for you. Reason through this. Think through this. Ponder this. Because when you do, you will understand. It's not reasonable. And this is the point that Paul was making back in Romans 5, that sometimes you might die for a good man, but Christ died for you while you were, you were scarlet, while you were red like crimson. This is when he died for you. Saints, if your life is as hot as a frying pan, if your life is just that hard, Stop. Think. Ask yourself some questions. Where am I being disobedient? Where am I sinning? God isn't punishing you for those sins. He died for those sins. He's correcting your behavior. Because he's answering your prayers. That prayer that you prayed when you came to him and asked him, make me yours. And saints, dear saints, hear me on this. If you're not willing to ask yourself these questions, if you're not willing to tap out and submit, know this, your life is not so bad that it can't get worse. God would never do that. You still have a home. You still have loved ones. You still have the ability to think and to reason, to act like a human. God would never do anything like that. Tell that to Nebuchadnezzar. All that was taken from him. Saints, your frying pan life can get hotter. 
But do you really need to jump into the flames to learn, to submit? If this is how hard-hearted and stubborn you are, God has given you one final warning. Right after those verse 18 of Isaiah, the one where he says, come let us reason together, and then tells us of his amazing grace, he tells us in verses 19 through 20. And this is important enough that you read it with your own eyes. Grab your Bible once again. Turn with me to Isaiah 1. Right after Psalms, Isaiah. Chapter 1. Read verse 18. I want you to read it with your own eyes. Read verse 18. I want you to see for yourself that this is what God is asking you to do, to reason with him. Now read verse 19. If you're willing to obey, you will eat the best of the land. And then verse 20. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Saints, do you really need to jump out of the frying pan and into the fire? Again, God is not mad at you. He loves you. And he desires what is best for you. But in his love, because he has given you his son, he will take everything from you to conform you into his son, to cause you to obey because he knows that's what's best for you. Saints, be wise. Look at what Christ did on the cross for you. Choose to live today in obedience to the Lord knowing that every decision that you make from what you will have for lunch up from there, those decisions, they all are the decisions of whether or not you're going to remain on the narrow path and go through the narrow gate. That's how intimate God wants you to be with him. Let's pray.